Okay, today we've got two readings. Uh, first one's from Psalm 33, uh, second one's from Romans 15. If you want to put your fingers in those places. Okay, Psalm 33, 12 to 22. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. And Romans 15, 4 to 13. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. And again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, thanks Mitch and good day everyone. My name is Scott, one of the ministers here. It's super, super, super nice to be in church with you with the lights and smiling faces and happy people and all that good stuff. Let's pray and we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of year where we sit in the story of Christmas and all the hope that is attached to that. And we pray that you would impress that hope upon us now. In Jesus' name, amen. During a uh, manned mission to Mars, a NASA crew, including Commander Mark Watney, encountered a a fierce storm, space storm. And Watney was hit with a flying piece of debris in that storm on the surface of the red planet. And his spacesuit provided no kind of data back that there were any signs of life, and so he was presumed dead. The rest of the crew escaped from the pod and started to head back home to Earth. But here's the thing, Watney wasn't dead. And after making his way back to the temporary base on Mars, he realised his predicament. 
He was living in a shelter that was designed to last 31 days. He had enough food to last 51 da- or 50 days, I should say. He was 50 million miles from home, and it would take a NASA crew four years to reach him. But none of them, no one else, knew that he was alive. Now, that hopeless situation is the opening scene of the film The Martian, starring Matt Damon, my favourite actor. Uh, funny film, great actually. It received the Golden Globe as the best musical or comedy, which I found weird, seeing as there were no music in it and it was a drama, but there you go. And the rest of the movie kind of unpacks how Watney's going to deal with that hopeless situation. Now, I'm not giving anything away. Everything I say today is in the trailer, but he relies on his skills as a botanist to grow food on a planet where nothing grows, and yet none of that counts if he cannot get in touch with Earth. If no one knows his situation, it remains hopeless unless something kind of fills in that breach between those two worlds, between Earth and Mars, unless someone comes to get him. Now, today we're finishing off our Advent series by seeing that the King brings hope, and I actually think it's an entirely similar situation. It would be hopeless for us if there was no one or no thing that filled the breach between heaven and between Earth. Sure, we could make the best of our time here on the surface of this planet, but that's a pretty bleak scenario unless God somehow breaches that gap to us, somehow makes contact, or even better, comes to take us home. Now today, we're going to see that in addition to, to the King, Jesus bringing a kingdom of peace and salvation, and even God himself, all of which we've thought about and celebrated this Advent season, the King brings that hope. And we're going to look at the nature of hope as we conclude our Advent series today. Now, just by, by way of reminder, you'll remember that Advent means coming. And in this Advent season, we've, we've really been sitting in the Christmas story, looking back to that first coming of Jesus in a manger at Bethlehem, But just as we're anticipating time off work and our children or grandchildren time off school and looking forward to holidays and parties and family gatherings and presents, we've also been anticipating, that is looking forward, to the return of Christ. And really the season of Advent is for both, isn't it? It's for looking back to Bethlehem and then looking forward to Christ the King returning in glory to take us to be with him. And today we're going to see that the king brings that hope. I'd like to start today by thinking about hope in the imagination of God's people of old. And so I do hope you've got Psalm 33 open in front of you. Uh, His Old Testament people were commonly known as Israel. What was their hope like? What is biblical hope? Well, hope is really a trusting anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. Not just kind of wishful thinking, not just I'm feeling lucky or good about this situation. Friends, Bible words have got Bible meanings. And this Bible word, hope, means trusting anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. And in the Old Testament, we see that God's people were always taught that hope in the Lord was a sure thing. It was just that, a trusting anticipation that God would fulfill all the promises that he had made to his people. And yet it was difficult for them to continue to trust in God rather than in the best worldly options available. 
And that's why Psalm 33 reminds the people they were blessed to have the Lord as their God. Have a look at verse 12 in your Bibles. Blessed is the nature, the nation whose God is the Lord. Fortunate are the ones, Old Testament Israelites, because God had chosen them from among all the nations, all the places, all the peoples that he had created. Blessed are the ones who fear him and put their hope in his unfailing love. And really, they're just two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Uh, blessed are you because God has chosen you from among all people. But on the flip side, you get to put your hope in him rather than the best worldly option available. And so that really sets up the basic kind of definition or concept of hope in the Old Testament. The people of God were enabled to put their trust in the Lord. They could anticipate confidently the fulfillment of God's promises. They had both his unfailing love and his unbreakable promises. But you'll notice that psalm follows it up with the rationale, the, the reason for hoping in God. It's not just a wonderful idea. Here's the reason. He will, in fact, deliver. Uh, hope in God, it says, is a far better bet than trusting in an army or trusting in a warrior or even trusting in a horse. Because after all, God looks down on all those things from his position of great sovereignty and supremacy with the knowledge that he has made them all. Have a look at verse 15 there. He forms the hearts of all. He considers everything they do. And so despite their worldly appearance of strength, the king's army cannot save. The mighty warrior cannot escape. Even the horse cannot deliver. Now those are the alternatives that presented them th themselves to God's people of old. Kings, armies, warriors, horses. And they had to choose, do I trust in those or do I trust in the Lord who sees them all, who knows them all, who made them all? So of course that choice is clear and that's where Psalm 33 ends. Because the Lord sees his people and ultimately because he saves them from death, keeps them alive during the famine, the appropriate response is there in verse 18. It's to, to wait in hope. Or in verse 19, to rejoice in their hearts or to trust in his name. In short, the answer is to hope in him. So that's good, right? We know what hope is. Bang. Trusting anticipation that God will fulfill his promises. We know what the alternative to hope in God is. Kings, armies, warriors, horses, or whatever the modern day equivalent is for us. And we know why you're better off hoping in God than all these other things. And that is because he sees everything, he considers all things, he made all things, and he can deliver from the worst of all things. Oh, good to know. Right, back on Mars. Mark Watney, Matt Damon, he's worked out how to grow potatoes using his skills as a botanist on this red planet where nothing grows. And he's getting on with the job of living. But he just can't do that forever because that's actually a, a pretty bleak scenario unless there is some kind of transmission from Earth to Mars or Mars to Earth. He needs Earth to know that he's alive so they will come and get him. And if there's no such transmission, there's no such contact, his situation remains wretched. 
And potatoes get really boring after a while, don't they? And there's this point in the film, and I'm really not giving anything away, where he makes contact with NASA on Earth. But without that transmission, they don't know that he's still alive, and he has no reasonable hope of rescue. There's nothing to keep him going. There's nothing to provide lasting hope. He's just got to sit there and eat his spuds. <coughs> now, what if you were an Old Testament Israelite? You've got the words of Psalm 33 close to your heart. But boy, it's been a long time, hasn't it, since, since there was a transmission between heaven and earth. I mean, you might never have experienced one in your entire lifetime. You know, the 400 years before the coming of Jesus are sometimes called the 400 years of silence because no prophets of God had been sent. His people remained in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, ruled by the Romans who despised them. It's just silence, bleak silence. They even tried revolutions to overthrow the Romans and they failed spectacularly. In other words, they gave that whole armies, warriors, horses thing a red-hot go, but to no avail. And then a baby was born in Bethlehem. And it was accompanied by strange things in the sky, wonders in the skies, and angelic messengers, and the, the great paranoia of those who ruled over them. Man, there must be something in that, wouldn't you think? Something there that might warm cold hearts or quicken deadened expectations. Something that just might light a candle of anticipation and optimism. Something that might rekindle hope. Friends, the birth of Jesus is like that transmission from Earth to Mars or Mars to Earth. It's a breakthrough in communication between two worlds, heaven and earth. It is the indisputable signal that God knows we are still here, that he continues to see us and consider us, and that on the flip side, it remains our best bet to keep hoping him, rather than the best worldly options available. In other words, Jesus satisfies that Old Testament hope, that trusting anticipation. In flesh and blood, he breaks through into our world to deliver a message in fact, to be himself the message to remind us that the people whose God is the Lord remained a blessed people. That he remains our help and our shield. The one who delivers us from death, no less. The one who's worthy of all our hope. And so, of course, the birth of Jesus is not a new hope. It's a fulfillment of that old hope we saw in Psalm 33. And yet the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth, that great transmission that breaches the gap between two worlds and lets us know that God still sees us and loves us, well, that actually extends and it expands and enlargens that Old Testament hope in two key ways. And firstly, it expands that hope so that it is a hope for all people. And that's what we see in Romans chapter 15. So turn there, if you would be so kind, page 1139. And we really pick up Paul's message kind of midway through a thought, and he's discussing the whole Jew-Gentile thing. But he says this from verse 4 on. Follow along with me. Everything, 
Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement... Why aren't you looking at your Bibles? You should be looking at your Bibles right now. And through the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind, one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is strange. Hmm. Uh, Not to begin with, everything in the past was written to teach us. Good. Psalm 33 was written to teach us to have hope. The whole Old Testament was written to teach us to have hope. That's why we've got to read it and learn from it. It's written for us. Excellent. But the next sentence is very odd, you see, because it's got this unusual vibe about having the same attitude towards each other so that we can, with a single united spirit, one mind, one voice, glorify God. I mean, what is he really talking about? And you can actually only work this out if you go back to Psalm 33 and ask yourself the question, who is the we? Who's it talking about in Psalm 33? Who are the ones blessed to have God uh, or to have the Lord as their God? Well, if you go back to Psalm 33, verse 12, and I'll do it for you here. Blessed is who? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I mean, he looks down upon all, but, but blessed is the nation of Israel whose God is the Lord. The we in Psalm 33 is the ancient nation of Israel. It's the Old Testament people of God. Now, I say to you, brothers and sisters in St. Matthews, ask yourself the same question of Romans 15. Who is the we? Who's Romans 15 talking about? On the other side of the birth, life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the we? Well, Romans 15 says, ah, it is not just the Old Testament people of God. It's just not the ancient nation of Israel. It is both Jew and Gentile who trust in Christ, coming together with a single mind and a single voice to glorify God. In other words, the coming of Jesus opens up the hope of Psalm 33 to become a hope for all people. This is good news for us. When I uh, lived in England uh, a wee while ago, I had a friend called James. It's very easy to do in England because most people are called James. And he was your archetypal English gentleman. A little bit posh. Uh, You could imagine him as a colonel in Her Majesty's Royal Army, twirling his moustache, sending soldiers to their death while he sipped on English breakfast tea. Which sounds very mean, and he wasn't mean, he was a lovely guy. Uh, He went to an exclusive British high school, studied medicine at Cambridge, that sort of guy. And once we were having a discussion, and I mentioned a uh, a kebab shop back home. And when I said the word kebab, his eyes widened and his jaw dropped, and he says, did you say kebab? I'm like, yeah, uh, kebabs. You know, I'm one of those uh, little spinner things. And then he goes, you mean a stainless steel rotisserie? And I'm like, yeah, one of those little spinner things. Like, keep up with me, English, speaking your language. And then um, without realising how ridiculous it sounded, he blurted out, oh, so Australia's quite modern then. (laughs) Yes, James, we got them little spinner things to cook our fatty lamb sandwiches too. 
I just couldn't believe in his kind of little Britain that lamb kebabs were, were really the property, not just of an especially entitled race like the English. It's quite modern then. Yes, James, it is. The kebab, the high point of all civilization, is something that all people can enjoy, not just for a single nation. It's a hope for all people. Now, <laughs> I think you thought we actually did ride on kangaroos, you know, all that sort of thing. Now, friends, the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that God is still concerned for us and will deliver us, is a hope he has opened up for all people. It is no longer the possession of a single chosen nation like Old Testament Israel. It's been expanded to include the Gentiles, that is, other nations other than the Jewish people. It is a hope for all people, including us. And you see this throughout the rest of Romans chapter 15. Have a look, for example, in your Bibles, verse 8. Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so the Gentiles, non-Jewish folks, might also glorify God for his mercy over and over in the following verses. Quote after quote from the Old Testament indicates that God was always interested in not just the ancient Israelites, but also the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world that includes us. And then you get to verse 12 where it quotes... Isaiah, the root of Jesse. Now it's talking about Jesus. He's descended from King David's father, Jesse. The root of Jesse will spring up. One will arise to rule over nations and the Gentiles will hope in him. Christ has served the Jews and God's promises made to the patriarchs, that is, forefathers like Abraham in the Old Testament, that all people will be blessed. Jesus coming to earth, his birth, life, death, resurrection, extends the hope that Israel knew in the Old Testament to the nations of the world, to people from all places, to the Gentiles, so that they, and I really mean us, would glorify God as well, singing his praises, enjoying his mercy. Jesus does not bring a new hope, but he extends that ancient and original hope to the nations of the world. Which is very good news for us, because otherwise we would have no such hope. And we certainly cannot presume upon that and say to God, I'm an Australian. I'm entitled to your salvation and your hope. We can't do that, but in his great mercy, he has opened it up to us all. It's a hope for all people. Secondly, the coming of Jesus extends that hope into eternity. It's not just a hope for all people. It's a hope for all time. A hope that endures to the grave and beyond. And You would have picked up on that repeated idea there in Romans chapter 15 about endurance and encouragement that are connected to hope. And verse 13 expects we're going to overflow with hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian hope that fulfills Old Testament hope, but in fact extends Old Testament hope, is a lasting hope. It's one that prevails. Now back to Mars. Mark Watney, he's made contact with NASA on Earth. They know that he's alive. There's been a transmission that bridges those two worlds. He knows that they know that he's alive. 
and are making plans to come and get him. And that knowledge, based upon that communication, that message, that transmission, that is the only thing that gives him hope to continue. But they haven't got him yet. He's still there on Mars, and it's going to take them four years to get to him. You know that our hope, based on that first transmission of Christ, entry into our world, bridging the gap between heaven and earth, that's the thing that gives us encouragement to keep going because God has not rescued us yet. Not fully, at least. He hasn't brought us home, as it were. And in the meantime, we wait. We wait with enduring hope and lasting hope because we have that first transmission and we know that he's on his way. Friends, Jesus has not only come into our world the very first time as we remember and celebrate at Christmas, but he is coming again to rescue us, to deliver us, to bring us to our eternal home. And I must impress that ongoing, prevailing, lasting and enduring hope upon us all. He will return to come and get us and to take us home. And so, of course, the question is, well, how do we wait in the meantime? What do we who have this enduring hope do as we wait for its fulfilment when Christ comes again to take us to be with him? Because we're not on Mars trying to grow potatoes. So three thoughts as we think about how we relate to our world, then how we relate to one another, and then finally how we relate to God. So the first thought, how do we relate to our world? The answer is, don't hope in a horse. Sounds like an odd thing to say. Hopefully it sounds like an odd thing to say, otherwise you guys are all weird. But Psalm 33 verse 17, what does it say? The horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. It's not talking about punting on the ponies, by the way. It's saying don't put your hope in what appears to be the best worldly option on offer. It's saying put your hope in God's unfailing love and his unbreakable promises. You know, a horse back then, it was the best worldly option available. It denoted wealth and it denoted military strength. Kings, armies, warriors, horses. The best worldly alternatives to hoping in God. Don't hope in a horse because it cannot deliver you from death, cannot save you from sin, cannot rescue you from Satan, cannot bring you out of the darkness of depressed hopelessness despite its great strength. And so, friends, I need to ask well, we need to ask of ourselves, what are the modern-day equivalents of the horses that we are putting our hope in? For me, I sometimes wonder whether I'm really just trying to make it to the end of the week in my own strength. That is, I'm hoping in my own abilities or hard work or persistence or whatever it is, but that's not going to be enough. You might be doing the same. You might be hoping in your abilities your work or service in the home or the workplace or the community or even church, you might think that's really the thing that delivers me. Maybe in our property-obsessed kind of culture, it's bricks and mortars. It's uh, a home or it's other material possessions. Maybe it's your health. 
Maybe it's the operation that you know you need to have. Maybe it's the family that you have. Maybe it's the family you don't yet have. You're just hoping that if you find that special someone or you have a child or a grandchild, that will answer all your hopes. Maybe it's just that elusive Christmas day or special time when everyone's together and everyone's happy. And of course all those things are beautiful things, they're good things, they're wonderful things, and yet none of them can deliver us or keep us in the way that God's unfailing love and his unbroken promises can. And of that I can guarantee you. But it's only because God first wrote those words in Psalm 33 and then gave us his son who entered our world in fulfilment of those words, effectively saying, I still see you. I still know you. I am considering you. And I really do love you. In that extraordinary breakthrough in transmission that bridged two worlds, heaven and earth, that we celebrate at Christmas time. So friends, don't hope in a horse, really. Hope in him. Second thing this thing means is we, we ought to accept one another. The hope that we have in Christ, it's so significant, it's so large, it's so extensive that it can catch up all peoples. The hope that bloomed in the coming of Christ, in his birth and life, and then of course his death and resurrection, it's too large to be confined to just one national or people group. It's a hope for the whole world. It's a hope for people from different backgrounds, which necessarily means people who are different to us in some ways. Now, hear me clearly. I am not saying that all religions are basically equal and should be considered as equally valid. Though I do hope in our country we can treat people from different religions or no religion with respect and service. But what I am saying is that people who have this specific, unique, wonderful, beautiful hope in God which has been opened up by the coming of Christ need to unite because something as significant as your ethnic heritage is smaller than the common hope we have in Jesus. Romans 15 verse 7, have a look at it. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. If Jew and Gentile, that great dividing wall in the first century church can be overcome because Christians from completely different backgrounds could get along together, then that is something that we can do. Accept one another because Christ has accepted us. What a wonderful thing to concentrate on in the season of Christmas. Now lastly, it becomes of us, I would say, to hold on to this enduring hope. The very best that we enjoy here, however good your Christmas day is, it is a pale reflection of what is to come. We are like Mark Watney on Mars, waiting to be collected. How foolish it would have been for him to settle for making red sandcastles and never-ending potatoes on Mars, forgetting that someone was coming to bring him home. Isn't that what we do all the time, though? Forgetting the culmination of our great hope, not when Christ came the first time into our world, but when he returns to bring us home for all eternity. This story about a rich bloke, a rich fellow who goes to heaven and he's allowed to take one thing from earth with him. So it's a made-up story. You can't do that, just letting you know. 
Anyway, he brings his most valuable possession with him, bars of gold, and he stuffs them into a rucksack. And he rocks up to heaven, and an archangel, who I think has an Australian accent, (laughs) stupid, looks over his shoulder into the rucksack and goes, what's with all the pavers? What'd you bring them for? You don't believe it, do you? The place we are going, the streets will be paved with gold. And we will be there with God himself. And Jesus is coming to take us to be with him for all eternity. But we'd rather play with red sandcastles here. We look back to the first coming of Christ in a manger at Bethlehem. Yet we look also forward to his return in glory to take us to be with him forever in perfection. This is our enduring hope. This is what we anticipate. Not just his first coming, but indeed his return that we still await. Friends, I'm going to pray that we don't just look back this Christmas time, but we look forward in great anticipation. Why don't you join with me as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father God, we thank you that the hope your people of old had, that trusting anticipation that you would fulfill your promises, was a sure hope, one that was not only fulfilled by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into our world that we remember at Christmas time, but one that was extended to all peoples, including us, for all time. And Lord, we want to be people at this Christmas who don't just look back to that and see it as a quaint, nice story or even a wonderful breakthrough in transmission that reminds us that you still see us and love us. We want to be people that look forward to that time when you come to take us home. So this Christmas, let us live in the anticipation of that great event when our King comes to get us. Pray these things in his wonderful name. Amen.